Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, John Dennis, Oregon-based attorney and entrepreneur in the burgeoning legal psychedelic industry in Oregon. Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast, John. A lot's changed since we connected in Vegas over a year ago. How are things in Oregon today? Oh, thanks, Dennis. Thanks for having me. Things in Oregon are really good. It's a little overcast here in eastern Oregon and, you know, January, today's January 3rd and... Uh, just as of uh, yesterday, the state started receiving applications for psilocybin uh, licenses. So it's just like the this whole ecosystem is just getting uh, started and kicked off. And it's just really an exciting time. And I think there's a lot of electricity around kind of this new era where psychedelics are, are kind of here and coming above ground. It's really exciting to follow what's happening in Oregon. I've got an aunt and uncle who have a cabin in Bend, so I'm going to go check it out and see, you know, get on the ground in the near future here. And I've got friends who are working in various capacities as therapists or, you know, in the underground market, et cetera, in Oregon. So I'm curious to dive in with you, who probably have a better handle on the legal and regulated psilocybin services landscape in Oregon as arguably anybody out there. So thank you again for joining us. And let's dive into that right away, right? Of course, Measure 109 has had a lot of press around it. A lot of people are following what's happening in Oregon, setting a legal precedent for a psilocybin mushroom industry. And there's also been a fair amount of controversy and a lot of misunderstanding in regards to the practicality of what's actually allowed under the Oregon psilocybin services that have just rolled out a day ago, just rolled out January 2nd, 2023. So in a broad strokes elevator pitch, John, if you were to explain the process for opening a psilocybin service center in Oregon, as it currently stands today, what exactly is involved with that? What does the licensing look like, the permits, the fees, who's eligible? What is the broad strokes for how these services are getting established? Yeah, thanks, Dennis. Licensing fees are, you know, in the ballpark of $10,000 if you're going to be a service center or a manufacturer or a testing lab, $2,000 if you intend to be a facilitator. There's that, and there's some fee waivers for people who may be veterans or have other, like, low-income or, or public benefit recipients and those things, people like that. But at, at the high level, uh, the Measure 109 program, as you probably know, uh, is is a, a supervised adult-use program that allows people to take psilocybin virtually for any reason uh, it doesn't allow a home dispensary type of model. It's a consume at a licensed premises under the supervision of a licensed uh, facilitator who's been uh, licensed by the state in order to, you know, safely supervise uh, kind of administration sessions or, or people who take psilocybin. So there's uh, prep work that's required uh, between the facilitator and the client uh, in advance of this session. And then there's a, a mandatory offering of integration after a person has uh, their session, uh, their administration session. But um, Overall, people are allowed to take psilocybin for virtually any reason, and what we're expecting to see uh, kind of here shortly, and in, in, in if, if I'm uh, making projections and predictions of, of how this is going to play out, I think um, in, in very short time, we're going to see this consumer-driven marketplace really start to develop into a niche ecosystem where uh, people specialize in either being microdosing coaches or people specialize in offering more uh, ceremonial or entheogenic type um, of offerings. Of course, there will be the standard uh, introvertive trip sitting types, and then um, probably also 
um, kind of people who are doing it in a more social or recreational context where facilitators uh, fill the role, more of a harm reduction uh, person who's less involved in kind of, and there's a more extrovertive type of um, experience that people are allowed to have. But uh, there'll be group ceremonies are going to be allowed. We're going to have outdoor sessions that are going to be allowed. And yeah, that's kind of the, the, the high level. In order to open one of these service centers, one of these licensed premises where people will take psilocybin, they'll buy it there and they'll consume it there. And, you know, it has to be uh, limited on the premises. So people aren't allowed to take psilocybin outside of the premises. They have to experience all the effects at one of these locations. And so, of course, the locations are going to be uh, designed to be as, um, you know, pleasant, enjoyable, to make help people make the most out of their experience and give them kind of, it's a consumer-driven marketplace. So it'll be really interesting to see how how the market responds to the different offerings that are out there. And I think it's anybody's guess as to really where, um, what, the, what the people will uh, support with their with their dollars, right? Um, so so it's a really interesting kind of experiment that's just kicking off. And, and I think that we'll see um, kind of a diversification and a, and a nicheification. I don't know if that's a real word, but uh, probably happening very quickly. And, um, you know, and, and the process of opening a service center is, is pretty extensive. I mean, you've got to go through multiple layers of local um, land use, uh, you know, permitting uh, process according to land use and zoning and, and city planning departments and things like that. So that can be kind of a, a whole uh, process unto itself and, you know, clearing building codes and all that sort of thing. Um, and so by the time it's all said and done and you get your security cameras and your ADA accessible uh, kind of uh, ADA accessibility and you get your safe for your products and all those sorts of things, I mean, it's the, the expectation. I mean, my projection is around a quarter million dollars kind of on the lower end of what it would cost to open one. Um, and that's at the extreme, you know, pretty, pretty low end. And of course, they can be, you know, millions and millions of dollars depending on how how luxurious people want to want to get with it but um that's kind of a yeah at, at a high level that's kind of the overall uh, process as i understand it right on thanks for breaking that down and now as psychedelics become increasingly popular and more and more people across the united states and beyond are looking to access them one of the concerns that I've heard crop up is the lack of an educational framework to support all of this hype and all of this excitement. And I know I know that's something you're directly involved with, with the VITAL program, I believe, with Psychedelics Today. I just had Joe and Kyle on the podcast to talk a little bit about VITAL. But it's something that I have seen also as a former high school educator that exists right now is this sort of gap between verified legitimate educational frameworks and all of this excitement and industry and the shift in policy. And to sum it up, it seems that policy and industry are evolving at a much faster pace than education around psychedelics. So I, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that. What is your role with the VITAL program with Psychedelics Today? And what are the, what are the programs that exist currently in Oregon to help license and prepare and train facilitators for this huge demand that you're experiencing under Measure 109. Yeah, so thanks, Dennis. Um, so I'm the executive director of a, a company called Vital Oregon, which is through Psychedelics Today, and it's kind of an offshoot of their Vital program that you probably uh, went into great detail about uh, talking with them. So uh, Vital Oregon is related to, but uh, very distinct from the original Vital program in Vital Oregon, um, will be one of the programs that um, people can take and will satisfy um, their education requirements in order to become a facilitator. So in order to become a facilitator, you have to have basically a high school diploma or equivalent. 
uh, you have to pass a Oregon Health Authority approved facilitator training program. And then you have to pass a test that the state administers. And it uh, turns out to be a 30 question multiple choice test um, that, that they, you know, administer in order to make sure you kind of are, you know, competent and know some of the, the basics about kind of administration and just the whole um, kind of program. Um, and then and then you become licensed, right? So um, right now we see a total of 19 different programs that have been uh, approved by the Oregon Health Authority uh, to, to offer these trainings. So there's, a, there's really a, a whole lot of them. And um, I published an article in the MAPS Bulletin in early November um, kind of talking about how you know, this niche ecosystem is really starting to take off. And what we're already seeing is within the context of these different training programs, them starting to sort of fill different roles and understand the role of facilitator in different ways. So we see, for example, um, there was a program called Earth Medicine Center um, that was kind of approaching it through a more shamanically approached, kind of a shamanic orientation um, and what they call a... Uh, an eco um, an ecological perspective on facilitation, which is is really interesting and, and an important part of the ecosystem. And then, um, you know, you see things like the Subtle Winds uh, group has a facilitator training program, and they teach from a more harm reduction perspective. And you know, there's a group called Fluence that has a more kind of psychotherapeutic uh, perspective. And we at Vital Oregon, um, we um, are hoping to kind of create, um, you know, uh, our, the people who graduate from our program, we're hoping uh, will be kind of able to work in a diverse marketplace where facilitators serve in these different roles. So we're really kind of dialing it in on what are the, you know, the basics about microdose coaching and leading in theogenic type ceremony and, and, I don't know, harm reduction roles and kind of playing to the, the whole ecosystem so that our graduates can function professionally in a, in a wide variety of, of contexts. So, that's kind of our, you know, and we, we do it in a way that we're hoping to really just help create community within um, this this program. So um, we uh, aren't approved yet by the Higher Education Coordinating Commission to offer this kind of training to the state, but we're in the process of, of applying and going through that. So um, we hope to be launched here within a couple months. But but right now it's like, because Oregon's the first one to go with this, we're seeing a lot of interest in, you know, whether the state's program will be large enough to actually sustain 19 different training programs remains to be seen. So I think there'll be some that actually aren't able to make it. And I think we may even see a more, few, uh, few more come online uh, before it's all said and done. So it's, it's kind of just, like I said, there's this electricity where uh, everyone's really excited about, you know, psychedelics finally kind of coming, coming up on board. Absolutely. And along those lines, I've noticed a robust gray and black market product landscape, right? Especially in decriminalized cities, different chocolate bars and things like that. And there was a high profile case of a retail shop opening in Portland, right? Which, of course, was shut down and it made national headlines. Shroom Shop, I believe, was the name of that. But I'm curious if you have any insights into if, if uh, a retail side of psilocybin mushrooms is going to be something that we see on the horizon? Is that something that's being discussed actively right now? Is there any wiggle room for people or is that by and large just completely underground black market and all of these brands who are quite impressive, many of them actually, they've got their QR codes and linked to third-party testing results and things like that. But I think there's some misunderstanding about what you actually can and cannot do, especially in a decriminalized city, because my understanding is decriminalized just means 
deprioritize. It doesn't actually take it off of the legislation or, you know, doesn't make it, doesn't offer a legal protection. So I'm curious if you could offer any insights into conversations that are happening in regards to if we'll see a retail industry around psilocybin mushrooms in Oregon in the next few years. That's a great question. Um, so we have in Oregon Measure 110, which was uh, passed through the same a vote by ballot initiative at the same uh, vote that Measure 109 did in November of 2020. And measure 110, the decrim law, um, makes it this new, uh, you know, class of, of 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 punishment called a Class E violation, right? That um, a person may be subject to if they are caught with a personal use possession amount of any controlled substance in Oregon. Um, so for some of those, those are clearly defined. So for instance, for uh, psilocybin, if you have under 12 grams, you are in this class E range. And if you, for LSD, if you have uh, under 40 user units, which I think is them trying to avoid the more colloquial term hits, but um, if you have under 40 hits of acid on your person, you know, you're, you know, you're, you don't really risk a, a serious crime. You, you risk basically this uh, minor slap on the wrist that would, um, that you can actually, that would result in either a hundred dollar fine, or you can call a drug treatment screening hotline, uh, to see if drug treatment is indicated. And if drug treatment is indicated, you're not actually obligated to pursue treatment. It's just trying to give, uh, people contact points with these, um, you know, recovery uh, type programs that are, you know, available, uh, I, I believe free uh, through through Measure One Ten, which is repurpose some cannabis monies to provide for addictions um, kind of recovery. So, um, in Oregon, we don't have an option for um, you know growing or distributing or uh, har you know foraging or gifting or selling or anything like that. So, um, the only type of activity that is uh, protected at any level is really just um, personal use possession. Uh, which you know is only, for instance, under 12 grams of mushrooms, which you know isn't isn't really a lot. Um, you know, we do see on the horizon there's talk of about a, a ballot initiative in Portland that would um, change that within the city limits to make it a low law enforcement priority. But uh, no matter which law enforcement agency uh, happens to find you with some personal possession amount of of whatever controlled substance in the state of Oregon, as long as it's a state and not a federal agency, um, you know, you really don't have any substantial risk, um, you know, from a, from a criminal liability perspective. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of misleading because I think a lot of people think, you know, we hear the term decriminalize and we think that it's fine. Um, you know, but without really unpacking what that means, I think there's a lot of people, for instance, who thought that the shroom shop was legal when it was open in Portland and, um, you know, and, and it, and it wasn't. And those people, I think, uh, are facing like 40 felony counts right now um, and, and many long years in prison uh, for, for running that, uh, that storefront in downtown Portland. Um, you know, they're open for six weeks. Uh, I think they, they made substantial money in a short amount of time. Uh, and the irony of it for me is that, you know, we see people selling basically overpriced mushrooms for profit and now facing 40 felony counts. Um, you know, and here now in January, the state's starting to accept licensing uh, for uh, people who are going to sell overpriced mushrooms for profit, you know, and, and they're not facing that. So because it's not through this, you know, highly regulated 109 system, uh, it's it's illegal. And those people are facing really long um, jail times, potentially, depending on, on how that um, that case plays out. But 
to contrast that with Colorado, thankfully, um, Mason Marks just wrote uh, a blog a couple of weeks ago about kind of interpreting, um, you know, the Natural Medicines Health Act there, uh, which in his and my reading, we actually think that it would allow for retail dispensaries within Colorado's program, uh, depending on how the regulations there roll out. I mean, they have a whole rulemaking process they have to go through that they're just now getting started on. Uh, but but in, potentially in Colorado, once um, they they go live in about a year and a half, uh, then they should uh, they, they'd have the option depending on how uh, their regs shape up. But sure, right on. Yeah. So I've, I've talked to a few investors about some of the concerns they have regarding participating in the legal psilocybin mushroom market in Oregon and Colorado versus the federal prohibition that still exists. And, you know, I mentioned, hey, you guys seem to be investing in a lot of different areas around psychedelics. What are you doing to to get involved with Colorado and Oregon, if anything? And a few different people have told me that because it's still federally illegal, at least for their business models, they're less interested in investing and participating, which is probably a good thing if you ask a lot of local Colorado residents or Oregon residents, right? You don't necessarily want these VCs and, and funds coming in some people might, but not everybody does, that's for sure. So I'd be curious, what are some of the practicalities and risks involved with opening one of these centers in Oregon specifically, because that's your area of expertise, obviously, against this backdrop of psilocybin mushrooms still being federally prohibited and scheduled as a Schedule One substance in the United States at large? Yeah, so there's, you know, it's still going to be even though you have this, uh, you know, exemption from state law prosecution, assuming that you are, you know, in compliance with the 109 rules and regs, uh, there's no such carve out that's available at the federal level. And I know people talk about uh, how we had the so-called, you know, the Cole memo for cannabis uh, under Obama DOJ, who, you know, they came out and said that they're not going to prosecute federally uh, people who are, you know, lawful, lawfully in compliance with a state law cannabis uh, program. We don't have anything like that in uh, psilocybin yet and, and probably won't for at least a while. Uh, so there, there's really this like risk that uh, anything that you do could be, um, you know, it, it, it could carry uh, criminal sanction uh, federally. And so we don't really know whether feds are going to do that. And, and so there is some risk of that. I think most of us who are kind of, um, you know, working in this space are all uh, not necessarily expecting that to happen, but in all fairness, we can't really say that we don't know that it that it won't. Um, and we uh, see uh, Catherine Tucker, my colleague, uh, recently kind of drew to my attention this case uh, called USV Safe House, uh, which is from Pennsylvania, and it showed that basically, um, even if an organization has the most charitable purposes in offering like a safe injection site. Uh, under the federal crack house statute, it's still considered a crack house um, and fully subject to, you know, prosecution under the Controlled Substances Act. Um, so uh, all service centers are definitely these, uh, you know, drug, um, you know, uh, involved premises under the Controlled Substances Act that could be totally subject, just like all manufacturing activity and all distribution and all sales and all of that. I mean, it's all still equally as illegal under federal law. So the question is, Will the attorney general's office, um, you know, really prosecute um, or the U.S. attorneys, will they prosecute um, people who are, are lawfully operating within 109? And 
um, that's a subject of great interest and, and nobody knows for sure, but I think, um, you know, those of us who are kind of operating in this space are, are expecting that they probably won't, but of course, um, you know, your results may vary, buyer beware, uh, all that, like there's there's definitely some risk there that we can't uh, pretend like isn't, isn't there. And I think it has that consequence like you named um, of, of keeping out a lot of more risk adverse, uh, you know, capitalist types, which I think is actually helpful to establish a more uh, community-based ecosystem where people are in it, not just to make money uh, free from risk, but really just trying to kind of center this work more in, in, in their values. And, and, you know, people are who are here are more here for the right reasons. And hopefully as there's, you know, this uh, ecosystem matures and develops a little bit above ground, uh, it continues to be, you know, that, that this initial kind of like head start, if you will, uh, that the that these more passion driven operators will have uh, you know kind of gotten a little more established um, so that they can you know just kind of curate the, the ecosystem in a in a way before the big money really starts showing up. Oh, if only the whole psychedelics industry could evolve in such a way where it was <laughs> passion focused, right? And people had their values in alignment and not just driven by the almighty dollar, if you will. So, in any anyone's guess how that's going to play out at a broader scale though. So of course there's a lot to celebrate about measure 109 and about this flagship model. And of a lot of people have their eyes on Oregon to borrow from the, the eponymous podcast name that you do with psychedelics today. Right? So I'm curious, what are some areas where you can, where you see, what are some areas for improvement with measure 109 and with the model that's currently unfolding in Oregon? It's brand new. I've heard plenty of criticism about lack of perceived lack of accessibility prices, et cetera, seems to be mainly about how much it costs to open and maintain one of these centers and to be in compliance with state regulations, et cetera. But I also believe don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. There's a lot of good that's happening. It's happening really quickly. But if you were to name a few areas for improvement with Measure 109 as it currently stands, what would those be? Well, to my thinking, the big kind of elephant in the room on the question of where 109 has shortcomings, um, it's actually in the very, not within the regs that we've just spent two years drafting, but actually within the statute itself. Uh, so initially, Measure 109 was conceived as a joint decrim and regulated access model, like we sort of like what we see in Colorado. Uh, they went in and took out the decrim elements, I think, because they thought it might be too controversial and the voters might not support it. So uh, they removed that. And now what we see is that, you know, the only way to access psilocybin is through this highly regulated, really um, cost prohibitive uh, system. And what we, you know, right now, nobody's not making, not very many people are making any money uh, off of this yet. But as time goes on, there's going to be more financial interest uh, in keeping the system so that, you know, the, the kind of stewards of the system uh, make money off of it. So um, the concern is that, as time goes on, it becomes harder to have these more affordable ways when there's people whose financial self-interest depends on it being the way that it is right now. So um, the Colorado model of combining the decrim with the regulated access really is the gold standard that I'm hoping uh, as you know, these psychedelic policy legal reforms start to spread throughout the country, that that is kind of um, the starting point for most, if not all of them, that they, they have that because otherwise you have these these kind of absurd results where you know, shroom house people go to jail for selling, you know, $50 mushroom access as opposed to the people who can't pay, afford to pay the $1,500 with a regulated whole bells and whistles kind of piece. So to really make sure that this 
ecosystem evolves um, in a way that keeps it people-centered and, and, and accessible, you know, that, that's, that's the, the, big, the big kind of ticket there that I'm hoping future states will kind of hopefully learn from our lesson. And I'll say to that end, when Measure 109 was still a measure, Decrim Nature came out and opposed it because they, they kind of foresaw that this would create this psychedelics industrial complex that's going to be exactly what happened. And when that occurred, I was really critical of them. And I thought, you know, just like you, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And how could you oppose this when there's people suffering now and all that kind of thing. Um, and as we saw rulemaking play out in Oregon, I kept thinking, well, I hope that they were wrong. I hope that they were, Decrim was wrong to oppose this. And I think in my view, the jury's still out on whether they were right or wrong to oppose this. I mean, I think this will play out in history over the next 20 or 30 years, how this ecosystem unfolds. But if this becomes this kind of a, uh, ecosystem where the only way to access it is by paying a thousand dollars to get access then and everything else remains criminal uh, then I think that we've we've done a real uh, injustice uh, here so um, so that's that's like the the high level and then in the in the minutiae so there's a bunch of uh, details that um, still um, kind of remain to be uh, figured out and I think First off, I want to give OHA a lot of credit because they did have an enormous job in figuring out an entire comprehensive regulated you know, program, right, when this has never been done before. So the enormity of that task, I definitely want to offer some grace, uh, you know, for that and, and understand that, you know, it, it's reasonable under such circumstances to start conservative and to become more, um, you know, um, you know, you tend to evolve over time as you gain more experience and competence in, in managing and regulating a program like this. So I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to, to those kinds of concerns. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with that and then say the areas where I think that they really have to uh, improve upon going forward uh, are in these areas of financial availability and affordability. So um, particularly in the high dose range, they have a two to one facilitator to client ratio, which means that for every two clients, you have to have one facilitator. So for a group of 11 clients who are taking three and a half grams equivalent of mushrooms, uh, they'd have to have six facilitators there on uh, that are, you know, on staff and, and they're supervising the whole thing, uh, which may be completely overkill. Uh, how many are actually needed? Probably not six. And so that's going to what I create what I call a facilitation cost floor, meaning that the average uh, client on a high dose session is going to have to pay for at least three hours of a facilitator's time uh, at, at an absolute legal minimum uh, and, and probably more than that, just for the administration session that doesn't include prep and integration. So um, basically creating some opportunity for proportionality within the safeguards between, you know, how, how safeguard, between the safeguards and the safety needs of a, of a driven group, like there's no flexibility for a, or for a, for a group to decide, you know, how, how many, like paid staff they need. So that's one thing that the state could do that would radically, you know, especially in the community context and religious kind of context and, and people who are not psychedelically naive, um, you know, that would reduce their barriers to access pretty substantially. And, and so that's, that's one big piece. And then on the other piece, um, you know, not really allowing like essentially a, a home grow type of uh, mushroom option within the 109 program, all mushrooms have to be um, participate in this highly commercialized, uh, highly regulated system where the uh, products get tested every 24, you know, every uh, batch for potency. 
Um, and you know that's going to add substantially to the cost and create kind of a, a bottleneck at the, in the in the supply pipeline that adds to the cost and uh, doesn't clearly add uh, to the safety uh, of, of the program. So I think those are, uh, in my view, the two big uh, things. And then the other thing is, you know, we have max group size of 25, so that stops there from being like a, a concert or a festival type thing and. Uh, the 109 program would be a really great place in my view to have um, music events and things like that where people there's just like more transparency there's more safeguards in place you know i think uh, the maps case that just came down um you know recently where they're they, they got sued um you know the the maps uh, the zendo volunteers really didn't know uh what substance people were on they didn't know dosing amounts that you know there's a lot of things like that where if they would have gone through a program like 109, they would have had all that information, they would have known that the supply was safe and all that kind of thing. Um, and so this kind of, the max group size of 25 really stops um, more kind of cultural expressions or, or cultural use um, of, of psilocybin. And I think that that was um, something that, again, you can understand them wanting to go slow at, at first, but um, hopefully over time, they kind of start easing some of those types of uh, restrictions so that, you know, they could actually reflect how people use psilocybin in the real world. Sure. And, you know, a, a lot of the criticism and controversy comes down to cost on both sides, cost for the client or for the participant in a psilocybin session, cost for the centers to roll out their services. And I'd be curious, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what are some of the different price points that are involved as a client, as someone who wants to go take advantage of this newly legally available psilocybin therapy. And I would imagine there's different prices, as you kind of touched on a little bit, between a smaller dose, maybe it's your first time taking a dose and you're taking 1.5 grams of psilocybin mushrooms versus you're taking a macro dose and there's, you really want to get deep there and you're looking to take seven grams or something like that. What, what are some of the projected costs associated with, with going to participate in a legal psilocybin therapy session? Yeah, so that's also another um, subject of great speculation and until all of these different kind of trends between service centers and products suppliers and testing labs and facilitators. I mean, we don't know, even know at a base, like what the going rate in the open market for a an hour of facilitation, uh, what, you know, what, what a facilitator's base pay is going to be on average. So that could uh, determine a lot. And, um, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces like that. I've heard uh, one nonprofit who I think is kind of leading the charge on a nonprofit service center model uh, says that for, from, for their clients, um, the minimum cost to access is $1,500 um, that, that they're projecting. Um, I'm working on a, a cooperative service center that I think will be able to, to do probably substantially less than that is, is the hope. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen just once all this comes together. But the short, short answer is really expensive, uh, particularly along the high end. And then on the more microdosing side, uh, one of the, the exciting things about this, one really good aspect of the rules is that they are going to allow these things that I uh, have been calling microdose cafes. But... Uh, you're not allowed to take your microdose home with you, but you can go to the service center and you can take your dose there. And then the minimum wait time before you're released to go um, under the regulations is only a half hour. So, you know, you could sit in the half hour, you could do a yoga class or a meditation class or something, uh, or even just have a social hour or a half hour with your, your neighbors, neighbors or community members. 
Um, and so that's a kind of a quick come and go, and then you can go about your uh, your day, you can go to your job or whatever it is you have uh, going on that day. So that, that'll be um, something that is, I think, there's a potential for that to be actually reasonably affordable uh, because, you know, the it's only a, couple, a few minutes of facilitators' time in an administration session that everyone will be responsible to pay for. So um, I, I think that I haven't heard people make projections of what that is, but it could be um, particularly if it's in a nonprofit community model. I mean, I think we could have it be, you know, potentially $30 or less. Um, but, but still, that's $30 for microdose, right? So um, that's still quite a bit more than most people are accustomed to paying who are already doing that. So whether that you know, increases or decreases over time. I mean, it's, it's just such a open season right here now. <laughs> nobody, nobody knows, but, um, but, but with the microdosing, it, it might actually be reasonably affordable because we did get some pretty good regs uh, that are custom tailored to, to really kind of optimize for that. Sure. And I'd love to talk about what it, what is required to apply for a manufacturer's license. We have quite a few cultivators who listen to the show to varying degrees of scale with their operations. And I've hosted people who I know are, are doing R&D in Jamaica and they're multinational companies, essentially ready, probably already have applied for a manufacturer's license. But I also know people who have moved from Oregon to Colorado because they find that that ecosystem might be more, might be better suited to their own personal needs. So what is required for application for a manufacturer's license and how many of those are going to be issued as far as you know and what is the general cost associated with that um so again we have a ten thousand dollar licensing fee for that uh, one of the interesting things about 109 is that it doesn't prohibit there from being uh, manufacturers in people's homes um, so it is in my understanding possible that a person could convert a spare bedroom into a licensed manufacturing uh, operation within 109. Uh, the problem with that, and I think the problem with the whole products market here, and of course this is just my um, read on it, and I've, I've, you know, when I've talked to clients or, or people, I've sort of, I, I won't say discourage them from getting involved with the, the uh, products market, but I think it's going to be an exceptionally tough market um, because. Uh, I think the, I actually haven't looked at the, the most recent version of this, but I think they allow on average 20 kilograms to be possessed, you know, equivalent dry weight mushroom uh, to be possessed at a time by any manufacturer. And I think 10 kilograms equivalent dried weight by, uh, for, a, for a service center. Uh, so when you think about how big Oregon's program is going to be, you know, 20, 10 or 20 kilograms is, is a lot and it's going to go a long ways. And I think a relatively few, like a small number of manufacturers are going to be able to supply the entire program. So I think what that results in under most normal market conditions is really low cost products because everyone's saturated and there's not enough uh, places to buy them or, or to, to, to to move them to. So uh, they, you can't sell them anywhere outside of the 109. If they're grown in 109, they have to stay in 109 and they have product tracking and all that kind of thing to make sure that it, it goes like that. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's going to be just a really tough business, particularly for growers. And I think there will be um, some opportunities for people who um, do like food products who are making, you know, edibles or tinctures, if they have some kind of um, novel recipe or brand kind of thing like that. I think there'd be 
Um, that's probably where, you know, if there is in, any money to be made in the product side in Oregon, it's probably going to be in my uh, projection kind of in those kinds of realms. Um, but even those could be really tough because I think there's going to be a, a, an oversaturated market because everybody wants to get experience. And I've heard um, that there are a number of people who are, you know, just basically thinking of Oregon as an opportunity to gain experience without even expecting to make money off of it. So um, when, you know, when you as a as a as a business person are have that as your competition where the money means nothing to them and it's just about um, doing it, you know, I mean, it, it's really going to be tough, I think, for, for most people to, to actually make that like a job that, that they can sustain themselves off of. But yep, that's about my understanding of it so far. So let's move from the macro policy level towards the more personal level. And you're involved with a very interesting intersection or niche, right, which is psychedelic law. There's not too many people out there who are specializing in law relevant to the psilocybin mushroom landscape, et cetera, et cetera. I could name all the lawyers I know on on you know, five fingers probably. So how did you get involved doing this? And is this an area that you feel is going to evolve quickly now that there's so much demand in Oregon and in Colorado? Uh, what, what, how did you get involved with psychedelic law in the first place? So it's kind of a fun story. Um, I live in Ontario, Oregon, which um, I believe, you know, from the numbers I've found online um, in terms of the most cannabis dispensaries per capita in the world, um, we have more than twice the amount of the, you know, the, the highest listed uh, cannabis, you know, town per capita in terms of cannabis, because we supply basically all of Idaho. Um, so I got to watch um, our whole um, cannabis prohibition, our locally enacted cannabis prohibition be overturned by a vote of the people in 2018. Uh, or maybe it was 2016, actually, I think it's 2018. But um, so watching that whole process and then watching the entrepreneurs kind of battle for territory and all that kind of stuff to, to really establish territorial dominance within the cannabis space in this uh, really small town that has like, at this point, I think 11 different dispensaries, you know, it's like one dispensary for every thousand people or something. Um, you know, so I got to watch that and have that like lived experience um, from, from and so when that happened and then two years later, 109 comes out, you know, that was just all really like fresh in my memory. So I just was kind of thinking about it from that perspective. And then, um, you know, so I had initially a plan to just kind of get involved as a, as an operator and not necessarily as a lawyer. Um, and as I started going to these, uh, 109, you know, rulemaking meetings and hearings, um, it just became clear to me that there wasn't really anybody uh, in the room speaking to this intersection of, you know, this 109 program and, and religious uh, liberties, which is, has been my interest uh, primarily within psychedelics, um, you know, just in general is like the more kind of religious use uh, cases. Um, and so, you know, back in, back in uh, mid 2020, I started taking the Navigating Psychedelics class through Psychedelics Today and got to meet Joe and Kyle. And I was interested in the religious issue back then. And then uh, Joe invited me to co-teach a class with him called Psychedelics and Religious Liberties in the US. So we kind of interviewed um, other lawyers who specialize in, in that even smaller subsection of psychedelic lawyering of like psychedelic religious lawyering <laughs> or religious psychedelic lawyering. And, um, you know, so that was kind of like my uh, entry point into it uh, on, a, on a lawyer professional level. Um, and then as 
you know, kind of just got deeper and deeper. And then I've just been kind of pulled in different directions and, you know, um, kind of asked to speak on, on other issues besides just the religious issue. But um, that's kind of how I, I got into it. And, um, you know, now it's like, the, the religious liberties issue is going to be one that I think we see a lot more of going on as, you know, there's just these entheogenic churches popping up all over the U.S. Um, and I think that it's going to be, in some ways, the, the, the thing that saves us from a complete capitalist takeover, there will always be religious use um, of, of entheogenic substances. And I think that will be to our great, um, <laughs> great um, benefit that uh, that that is um, protected use that's enshrined now at the U.S. Supreme Court and in some of the circuit courts. Um, so, yeah, that's a kind of a long and circuitous route to, to get here. Sure. And as far as the religious liberties aspect goes, I had I had Dave Hodges on the podcast, who's currently suing the city of Oakland in a high profile case. So that's sort of setting a legal precedent towards how this could go. And I think the only precedent that they had to go off was the UDV church with ayahuasca who was successful in their lawsuit, but it was a $7 million, seven year lawsuit. So I think we, we are going to see quite a bit more uh, on that front. So I've only got one more question for you today, John, and that's what's coming out of Sage, what's Sagebrush Law up to over the next six months? And what are some more pro projects? What are some more projects beyond Vital Oregon that you're involved with that we can follow and that, you know, you're positioning yourself to Take advantage. You're positioning yourself to fully experience and participate in this new emergent psilocybin and psychedelic ecosystem that's in Oregon. Yeah, so I've been um, kind of offered to join a number of different entrepreneurial projects, and I've turned the vast majority of them down. I've been trying to really um, I have a background in, in public interest lawyering and social justice lawyering. And so that's it kind of, uh, you know, informs my work in psychedelics now. and. Um, you know, I've really been trying to prioritize the, the work that I identify as having potential like positive long-term impact on the de development of the ecosystem, which means really establishing multiple paradigms of use so that it's not all medical and therapeutic and, and also kind of protecting religious use and, and, and making sure that that's a, a, a they, that religious use cases have like a seat at the table in these conversations and that they're, you know, an honored and non-stigmatized part of the ecosystem. So. Those are kind of the kind of my um, my big picture like hope uh, or my my goals uh, with within my work is to to really um, help kind of ensure that there's uh, sustainability and that those those are just protected and not like you know quickly glossed over by like a medical behemoth uh, kind of thing. Actually, interesting. Roland Griffiths uh, in it, in a recent interview on the Tim Ferriss podcast also shared that very concern. Uh, that perhaps the medicalization of psychedelics is going to take over and, and claim exclusive uh, rights to it so that they're, you know, like these other, you know, the so-called healthy normals, um, you know, might not be able to someday access because it'll only be through prescription through a medical system. So um, I think, you know, those those are concerns that I think really kind of keep me up at night a lot of times. Um, so um, in terms of the particulars of my um, involvement, you know, Sagebrush Law is um, is just me. But um, <laughs> uh, so I've been taking a, a very small number of clients with whom I feel you know a lot of alignment and you know believe that they're kind of helping to have impact on the ecosystem and really unfold it in in good healthy ways. And um, you know, and then the other 
uh, project is a, is a cooperative service center, like I mentioned. So it's kind of like hoping to just really keep this affordable and to keep this centered in community and make sure that um, this doesn't just become a for-profit uh, system that, you know, serves itself, but that it is actually, you know, people-centered and that it empowers uh, people. Right on. John Dennis, Oregon-based attorney specializing in psilocybin and psychedelic law. Thank you very much for joining us. I feel a lot more clarity on my end about what exactly is and isn't allowed these days. So thanks again for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to host you. Yeah, thanks, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I look forward to talking to you again soon. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Mycopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Mycopreneur Podcast.